Welcome to the Smart Firefighting Podcast. Kevin Sofen here, where we cover all things related to the future of smart technology for first responders around the world. Please enjoy the show and let me know what you want to learn about next. Hello, Smart Firefighting community. Welcome back. In today's Smart Firefighting episode, Jay Stallnacker joins us as the technical lead with XPRIZE Wildfire. Jay spent his career working in both the private and government sector, spending time as a Boulder County fire officer and a wildland firefighter and smoke jumper with the U.S. Forest Service. In this podcast, we're going to cover the different XPRIZE tracks, the space base, and the autonomous response within the competition to solve these audacious challenges. We're also going to cover the different partners supporting this effort and how you can get involved. Jay also gives us important context to the life of a wildland firefighter and what different entrepreneurs and industry stakeholders need to keep in mind as we work to support the wildland firefighting community. It's also important to note that the registration for the space-based track closes October 31st and the autonomous response track closes on January 31st, 2024. Visit xprize.org slash wildfire to learn more and register. Thanks and enjoy the show. Really grateful today to be sitting next side to Jay Stallnacker, the technical lead at XPRIZE Wildfire. Jay, how are you doing today? Doing great. Good morning. Good morning, and thanks for your time being here today. So XPRIZE has been in the news quite a bit. We've seen some of the different reports about what it's doing. But for those of us that don't have any context on what is XPRIZE and, and these different tracks that exist in layman's term and maybe even technical terms, what is XPRIZE and, and break down some of these different tracks that exist? Yeah, so XPRIZE is a nonprofit foundation. Uh, we were established almost 29 years ago, and our founder, uh, Peter Diamandis, wanted to start to incentivize technology and solving problems and big problems. So one of the first competitions that most people have heard of is the Ansari Prize, which was the first private spaceflight competition. So basically, that competition was was held. Millions of dollars were put up front as sort of uh, an incentive and competitors had to, you know, get to space, return, live, and then go to space again. So it was, you know, at that time, pretty earth shattering, if you will. You know, we changed lots of regulations with the FAA and NASA and began to really open up, you know, private space flight as it looks today. From there, we've had uh, over almost 30 other competitions, everything, you know, focused around biodiversity and conservation to education to human health. And right now we have three active prizes and the wildfire prize is the part, uh, the prize that I'm part of. And the wildfire prize is two tracks. So we have track A and track B and you can break those down a little bit if you'd like. Please. Yeah. So track A is what we call the satellite-based detection track. And what we're trying to do there is really enhance what satellite imagery can provide for the firefighter on the ground. And right now, as we all know, there's a lot of low Earth orbit satellites and high orbit satellites that are, you know, looking at fires. We all have looked at some of that data. Problems that we're trying to overcome with our competition in track A is is time lag. So the revisit time for that information to the, to the firefighter right now it can be almost over an hour and a half before an update is received to the ground from space and also accuracy. So resolution, you know, right now, basically we can see fires about the size of a football field. And what we're hoping to do is get it down to the size of about a, you know, 10 by 10, 10 foot by 10 foot front yard. So pretty small. And really the goal there again is to get competitors from around the world to look at that problem on satellite imagery and create a faster, more accurate tool for fire managers, specifically fire managers on the ground or on the incident as we know it. Track B, a little different but related, is autonomous detection and response to a wildfire. And what we're looking for there is um, solutions that will autonomously detect a destructive incipient stage wildfire. And I used a lot of uh, keywords there just to confuse the audience. But really, again, you know, we understand that fire is good. You know, I'm a prescribed fire practitioner. I've put a lot of fire on the ground, both in suppression and forest management principles and practices. But the reality is, is that, you know, with the ever increasing wooey, some would argue climate change and 
drought, our fires are getting more dangerous and destructive. And not every fire is dangerous and destructive. So part of track B is really for these competitors to use tools about fire behavior, fuels, topography, our common you know, set of tool uh, elements, or if you will, about fire behavior to determine, is that a bad fire or is that a good fire? And once they determine if it's a good fire or a bad fire, if it's a bad fire, we want them to initial attack it in the incipient stage. And if you look at the NFPA definition of incipient stage, it's it's pretty much, you know, a fire extinguisher could put it out is one way to put it. So we're looking to catch them very early and very quickly and all autonomous. So this is eventually no human involved here, all AI, machine learning. And I think of these as sentinels, if you will, or the modern day fire tower is how I look at it with the response element. So, you know, we're used to a fire tower with us sitting in there, binoculars, and then we call the engine crew to respond. This is just a modern take on that, that same concept. So yeah, that's the two tracks. And, you know, right now we have about, you know, over 200 competitors globally, almost every continent is represented with our our competitor list. And right now it's split in half, about 100 competitors in each track. So I guess in my simplest terms of what you were talking about, the two tracks are, are trying to see it differently and then trying to extinguish it differently. And in a I like lot of that. ways using, using it autonomous technology, using different types of new technology from, from the space, you know, not just drones, but using satellites. But I think we, we both know one of the challenges in the fire industry is you have that sometimes reluctance to do something different. You know, we go back to some of the Benjamin Franklin mentality of, get to the fire as fast as possible and put wet stuff on the red stuff. And, and there's this, this kind of mentality, obviously wildfires is a different game, but could you maybe dive into some of the challenges that maybe some of your competitors will face and just the challenge that X prize is trying to overcome when trying to kind of rethink the way that we approach these problems. And like you said, not all fires, bad fire, not all fires are created equal and it's just, it's just different. So what are some of these challenges that just exist that we need to be aware of as we navigate these next stages of dealing and living with wildfire? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, I think the word technology is a key here, right? You know, as a seasoned fire manager, you know, I was fortunate to work in, in an area where we were supported by our community financially, also, you know, just really have the tools to seek out technology. But honestly, in our entire field, and I'm talking wildland specific, you have to understand that there hasn't been a significant technological change in the way we detect, you know, respond to and suppress wildfires for over, well, I'd, I'd challenge folks to say since the 1960s when the first hotshot program was developed, you know. So, you know, this this movement in technology has been very slow, as you mentioned, the uptake. A lot of it is because we work in the environment of emergency and disaster, right? So one of the first problems, going back to your question, that we have to address, the competitors have to address is, how are these fire managers, if you will, going to accept this technology? They want it to be easy. We want it to be quick and fast and user-friendly. So those are a lot of key elements. The introduction of technology at the right time Another component that we heard from the competitors and sort of the industry, if you will, is the ability to test technologies outside of the real fire environment, but still relevant to that environment. In other words, where can you go find a wildfire that's safe to fly a drone over, in other words, or do some satellite imagery and not worry about the wildfire? So that was a big, that's a big hurdle that we're going to help competitors with. And I could talk about testing in a little bit. Some other, other hurdles, though, is uh, regulation. You know, so, you know, right now, uh, let's just talk about drones and UASs, UAVs. You know, right now, there's a lot of limits on what people, especially fire managers, emergency disaster managers can do with, with that technology. And, you know, fortunately, we're working alongside a lot of the government agencies, regulatory agencies right now during our competition. So we're going to overcome that hurdle for our competitors. So at least they can test their their solutions in a real environment with the FAA there, with the fire managers there, and everybody watching this technology perform or not perform. But in any case, you know, just that acceptance of technology, the ability for technology to be tested in an environment that's relative. And then, of course, the regulatory aspect are all big challenges for the competitors outside of designing 
you know, the solution, both, you know, new machine learning or AI for the satellite based track, maybe even some new sensors might be developed. And then for the autonomous track, you know, we're talking about decision making occurring at a machine level. That's kind of crazy. And one thing that we're known for at XPRIZE is audacious. We like to create audacious challenges. Of all the challenges we've had over this past 29 years, a few of them have never been won because they're so audacious. But what it does is it, it really shifts the culture of that field or that technology. And that's what we're trying to do in wildfire. Maybe we won't find the solution totally, but we are definitely going to shift the culture. And just to dive into it a little bit more on the change management side and, and not just almost, I don't want to say ignoring the, the technical aspect of the technology and actually solving said problem, but from your experience of getting different fire service members to crawl, walk, run, embrace new technology, what would your message be to entrepreneurs and, and other people in the competition and just those that are trying to innovate in the fire space What's your framework of how you approach bringing new technology that is is changing the way first responders and fire service members respond? I mean, what any sort of tips, tactics, examples you can think of of kind of what to do or what not to do? I appreciate that question. You know, I was the fire management officer for Boulder County, Colorado here. I developed the fire program from its infancy to what it is today. And as as you know, or most of your, your listeners know, Boulder has a, an extreme, you know, wooey problem and fire problem. And often uh, we're also a, a technology hub here in Boulder, Colorado. And so we would be approached with, with numerous ideas, if you will. So let's use that as an example of advice, right? So as a fire chief, you know, I'm, I'm approached by an innovator. Hey, check this thing out. You know, well, honestly, I was willing to listen. And I think that's the first piece of advice is be willing to listen, but also make time, you know, because a lot of times we're so busy. Somebody pops into the fire station. They want a five minute talk that turns into 45 minutes. I would suggest that those innovators make some time with the chief or the chief technology officer, if they have one at the fire department and, and schedule that meeting and, and treat it as, you know, you're taking time away from their day and you have to consider there are other responsibilities. So make time, number one. Number two is um, ideas are great, and we definitely want to collaborate around ideas and help with subject matter expertise as fire managers. But again, the time to do that is hard. It's hard to make time and space to be a subject matter expert for your solution or your innovation. So recognize and respect that. So when you come to us with a need or a question or a solution, make sure it's pretty polished, you know, try to get it to a point where it's beyond like, hey, have you thought of, you know, the basic stuff? So, you know, one example, and and I won't use the vendor, but there's a solution out there for detection that it's a very simple solution. I like it. But the problem is they didn't really have a tool to discern the different types of smoke. So in other words, it was detecting smoke, but it could be a smoke from your barbecue. It could be a smoke from a wildfire. They never thought about that. They just thought about chasing smoke. Well, we both know that that's just going to be a bunch of fire trucks running IAs all day long. So again, think it out a little bit. And and if you're there for advice or, or subject matter expertise, make that clear so that we're not expecting the solution to be you know fully vetted, if you will. And then lastly, I'll just say that if there's technology that you're ready to bring to the fire ground, make that clear. Try to do your homework on the regulatory and the legal aspect of it. Come prepared with insurance. And a lot of times we can implement those tools in the prescribed fire setting. Now, again, that distraction is a bit dangerous for fire managers because prescribed fire has that same element of, you know, we want to keep our eyes on it at all times. So understand that, you know, testing in that environment is difficult and it takes a lot of planning. So just be patient with that, but make yourself available. All good insights for all the entrepreneurs and those kind of trying to bring technology to the market. So thank you for that. And now I've heard you say the word testing a few times, and I'm working on another competition that's similar but different. Maybe it's on your radar with the the first challenge that NIST is running with Indiana University, focus on indoor localization. And there's been a lot of first responders that have kind of grown just tired and apathetic to this idea that is indoor localization possible. And they've heard a lot of these, yes, it's possible. And then the tech gets out there and they try it and, and it just breaks and it doesn't work. And I think there's unfortunately maybe a bad taste within certain aspects of technology just because 
you have certain vendors that write stuff on the spec sheet. And then in reality, as you know, first responders, they will put it to the test. They will break it. And it's okay that stuff breaks as long as you can kind of talk through it. But talk to me about the importance of stress testing and, and just testing in general. And, and then maybe some of the challenges you mentioned as far as, you know, it's hard. You can't just go and set off a wildfire to go practice on it. But talk to me about both like the challenges and the need for testing and then sort of why that's so important to be able to get that first responder buy-in to, to kind of see that, hey, this thing is actually doing what it says it's doing. Yeah, that's a deep question, isn't it? And I, and I think testing is the key here to technology. And as you said, it could be a, a deal breaker for anybody, not just first responders, but in the first responder you know, context, testing is critical and testing in the real environment under real conditions. And I like your word, break it. You know, one of our, our partners is Esri. And one thing I will tell say about Esri is that they enjoy you breaking their stuff and then fixing it with you. And that's an example of technology being integrated real well, very well into the wildfire space. And I know that personally, because I broke a lot of Esri tools early on as a fire manager, but they were more than happy to fix them or help us walk through it. So in that testing process, I think that innovators need to recognize fire chiefs, fire managers, that there is going to be failure. And you have to accept that, right? You have to accept that there's failure. And what's safe is another element, right? So there's failure and then there's safety. And a lot of times there's great ideas, but they're just unsafe for whatever reason. So, you know, safety is a critical part of testing as it is in our, our, our daily lives as fire managers, right? I mean, everything we do is around safety as well as should be. And with testing, it needs to be the same. So that hurdle, one of the things that XPRIZE brings to the table in all of our competitions is bringing testing to this innovators in a real life scenario or as real life as we can. So yeah, those hurdles around using these solutions in, the, in that real environment where they're broken and don't compromise safety is the challenge, tying that all together. So for us, if you don't mind, I could talk a little bit about what track A and track B testing looks like. Yeah, please. Yeah. So track A, remember again, is the, the satellite-based competition. So uh, I'm not going to tell you where we're doing it yet because that's a secret, but we will be testing in a very large area, the size of, let's say, bigger than Texas. And competitors will be required to basically, from space, monitor that area and determine all the fires on the ground that they can see. Now, we're also going to have some false positives on the ground. So we will be lighting both prescribed fire, large, large acreage prescribed fire, small acreage, you know, 10 by 10 prescribed fire. And then we might have some solar panels or wood-fired hot tubs or you get it. So some what we call false positives, smoke reports, right? So those challenges we're going to try to recreate in real life for competitors, one of the other issues that the satellite-based track, track A, faces is clouds and smoke, right? So you're trying to look through that, that layer of smoke or clouds, and that's been a problem right now with detection from space. So we're going to challenge our competitors to both use machine learning, AI, and new sensor technology to look through those cloud layers, through those smoke layers, Obviously, using prescribed fire, we create the smoke. We can't, you know, necessarily put a request in with Mother Nature for the clouds, but we do have a testing window long enough that it will allow us to take advantage of any weather conditions that we could find. In track B, it's more about the environment, if you think about it, right? So here I'll use environment in two different contexts. One is the, the physical environment, meaning the ground, the terrain, the slope steepness, the tree density, the canopy density that needs to be penetrated to get to that fire or suppress that fire. And then two, you have the, the weather element, right? The wind, again, the beyond visual line of sight flight, if you're going to be using an aerial solution. So we're going to provide, again, a real test bed at one of using test sites that allow for beyond visual line of sight flight, allow for autonomous flight, we do expect some ground solutions, so there'll be some on-the-ground obstacle courses crossing, you know, boggy areas, heavily wooded areas, heav de dead-and-down treed areas, all these real-life scenarios that we have been, you know, initial attacking for decades in will be mimicked in our testing. So we're really looking forward to that, and we've heard from the competitors that it's, an ex it's a very, very valuable, and I should say from the investors and the users also, 
our testing is extremely valuable to everyone involved. I appreciate how thorough it is. And, and granted, it's important to just put it to the test. I mean, can you do what you say you're doing? And, and I, as you said, these are audacious, big, huge challenges. And if they were already solved, then we wouldn't be, the XPRIZE wouldn't be having these challenges, but they are, they're big issues. So we're putting it to the test and I love to hear that. And so I just, uh, as I was diving into more of this um, XPRIZE and what is it, you had mentioned earlier, the kind of international collaboration. I had saw the alignment with the Australian Space Agency and the New South Wales Rural Fire Service. How do these global collaborations enhance the XPRIZE wildfire initiative? And tell me a little bit more about the role of kind of the international in alignment and, and sort of how this helps continue to advance innovation and, and the, the hopeful success from some of the, the competitors in this challenge. Yes. You know, as you said in, in the intro, my, my experience in fire management goes, goes back a few years for sure. And I will say that most of that time has been, been in the States. I've been fortunate enough in the last six months in particular to travel the globe and meet fire managers from across the globe. And I will tell you what, firsthand, that alone is an experience that could open our world as fire managers by just interacting on a global scale. The problem is same. The challenges are a bit different in the different global areas, but the solutions can be used in any any area. And the excitement about change in technology is there. Trust me, it's there. And in fact, as you probably know, when you travel to Europe and other countries and you see their firefighting tools and trucks and equipment, you're blown away because it's like, well, yeah, that's a great idea. You know, think about it. And why, it, as a former smoke jumper, I'm probably going to get beat up for saying this, but think about it. We're a bunch of construction workers on the fire ground in the States. We got construction hard hats, a yellow Nomex shirt, maybe yellow Nomex or brown Nomex pants, green Nomex pants, if you will, some old blogging boots and some leather gloves. That's our PPE? That is our PPE in 2023. You got to be kidding me, right? You know, the smoke issues, the inhalation of CO, you know, the danger that we face on the fire line, and that's the best that they can give us today. You go to Europe and these guys and gals are wearing full, full blown, you know, I wouldn't call it turnout gear, but gear built for the wildland environment that enhances safety. One example, let me just give you one example, the helmets. You know, again, we're wearing the basic construction helmet that you could go buy base, more or less at Home Depot right now. I mean, there's some nuances to that, and, and I'm sure the helmet industry is going to yell at me, but more or less, you could buy that, that Bullard helmet, if you will, right now. In Europe, that helmet comes with side protection, a face shield, a built-in headlamp, you know, a, you know, a harness system, and you think, like, why are we not doing those things? So, you know, I, I guess, you know, going back to, to the question and the point is, you know, it's amazing what we confined by just sharing knowledge across not just states in the United States, but countries and organizations. And again, I've been so fortunate to, in the last six months, to shake hands with these fire managers and hear the same problems, hear the same challenges. But honestly, we are behind in the states. We are behind in technology and we are behind in safety. And I will say that to anybody. I've been on the fire ground I was an operations section chief for type one team. I understand the risk and we're doing a terrible job at integrating technology to enhance safety. I mean, I couldn't agree more. That's hence one of the reasons why I started this podcast and I've been continuing to share best practices and that we have a lot to learn and apply from other states, other countries. And, and just because, you know, I hate that phrase of, you know, this is the way we've always done it. And I always ask, well, yep. for how long? I mean, forever, you know, since the dawn of time. I mean, maybe forever is like 100 years, maybe, which means that it can change and we can adopt and share best practices and, and evolve. And and I think your your insight, I want to dive into a little bit more. I mean, you had mentioned that, you know, you were Boulder County as a fire officer, you would uh, particularly a you know, wildland firefighter and smoke jumper. I think one of the things that I talk about with entrepreneurs quite a bit is, and, and you brought this up earlier about going to the firehouse, sitting at the kitchen table, bringing in a barbecue and cooking or, or getting some donuts and just sitting down and talking. There's so much value in that. But from the life and the lived experience and you know maybe the, the pain 
and the brother and sisterhood and the, and the enjoyment and the stories of a wildland firefighter, particularly smoke jumper. I'd love to just hear a little bit on like, what is the day in the life of a wildfire, wildland firefighter like and a smoke jumper like to where, what are some things that people maybe don't know that they should think about? I always kind of remind people, hey, we all put our pants on one leg at a time. We all, you know, wake up and, you know, we need to, you know, eat and drink and we need to meet our basic needs. And like, you gotta remember that these wildland firefighters are humans, but for just to kind of give a little bit of empathy and, and awareness into the life of a wildland firefighter and the ultimate goal of who we're addressing, I'd love if you could kind of just riff on that. For predominantly, a lot of the people I talk to are more focused on the kind of the urban first responder operation. So would love kind of a 30,000 foot view and then also, um, you know, from as micro and, and minutia as possible. Oh, man, I appreciate I do appreciate that question. Mainly, you know, one of the big reasons is you t- you just hit on it is there is a misconception that we're all driving around in red, shiny fire trucks and that we could hook our pumps up to a fire hydrant and our response time is under three minutes. You know, there's this this idea that that the community lumps us all into this one category of that that firefighter, you know, the one you see on TV. It's not true. You know, we are wildland firefighters. We actually is a great disservice. You know, for many years, I was not a firefighter. I was a forestry technician. That was my job title. So think about that. I'm going out every day, risking my life for wildfire. And my job title's not even firefighter. I can't even say that on my resume. I'm a forestry tech. So there's the problem where it starts right there is that the wildland firefighter, that history, if you know the history of it, there's stories of, you know, they'd walk into a bar in the West and say, who wants to go fight fire? And whoever was at the bar would go grab a Pulaski and run out and fight fire. You know, that hasn't, you know, that vision of of what a wildland firefighter, volunteer, intermittent use still exists today. But the reality is, is, is now it's a whole career field that's not acknowledged. It's a career field. I mean, you know, the classwork that I've had to go through, both technical and leadership. I've seen trainings that corporate executives have received that we've been able to, to get as fire managers in the wildland environment. We are valuable assets. And I learned that firsthand transitioning from government to private sector at the end of my career when I retired. I couldn't believe what I knew just because of what I knew, you know? So I will say that, you know, for folks out there that we are not structured firefighters, we don't wear bunker gear, we don't have SCBAs, and we typically don't drive in shiny red trucks. Now, are there agencies that that cross-dress? Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, they respond to structure fires and car fires and wildland fires, but those are the, you know, percentage of the wildland fire resources. The bigger percentage, as you started your question with, is the smoke jumper program, the hotshot program, the engine crew programs. Most of these men and women are young kids that are working seasonal jobs. So for six to nine months a year, they're running and gunning every single day, working 12, 14, 16-hour shifts on the fire line. You know, you've read the reports on the physical exertion. Some of it is in exceedance of uh, an Olympic athlete training as far as the the amount of calories and the effort needed this is not sitting on a recliner watching tv at the fire station this is you are out of the buggy and you are digging fire line for 12 to 16 hours every single day and then you know what at the end of 6 months what happens it shuts off everything shuts off and so you know our suicide rates have skyrocketed our divorce rates our drug and alcohol addiction rates have skyrocketed so much so that some statistics point to it's higher than the military right now think about that our and people don't even know the wildland firefighter exists let alone all these mental health issues that are a result of what we do i know i went on a tangent there forgive me but i think it's important to, to give some context to the the profession and I think that, it, you know, what is happening in, in Congress right now and hopefully that will happen in the next couple of years is that there'll be an acknowledgement that this is a profession. We deserve a pension. We deserve retirement. We deserve health coverage. Not that anybody else doesn't, but this field is, is left behind. It's left behind. So in the minutia, as a smoke jumper, it's a great life. You know, you uh, you sit at the jump base, work out, 
sew parachutes, maybe go out in the forest and do some uh, mitigation or forestry tech work. But in reality, you're sitting around waiting for the jump bell or, or buzzer to go off. And once it goes off, you're dressed within three minutes. You're on the plane circling some, you know, lightning strike fires out in the middle of nowhere. And then you, you jump out of the airplane and, and, uh, Next thing you know, you're on the ground fighting the fire with with your bros and sisses, and it's a good time. Now that's that's old school, right? That's old school. For the hotshot programs, it's a daily grind, man. A daily grind. Those guys and gals get chewed up after a summer, physically, mentally. They're living out of their shot buggies, barely at home, you know. So think about that. The impacts on family, and then they're out fighting some of the most dangerous wildfire. The hotshot crews are the most dangerous, the most upfront you can imagine, the most direct attack that you can imagine in the most extreme terrain, right? In conditions. So, and then the engine crews, same thing, you know, day to day chasing lightning strikes in the forest, hiking into remote areas, working long hours on the fire line. And so, I guess what I'm trying to summer, you know, say in, in a lot of words is this is a profession that has not been given its due respect. And that's because it's a hidden profession. You know, it's nobody's fault. We're just hidden. Most folks don't even know how to become a wildland firefighter. Like if you ask somebody, how do I become a structure firefighter? What are they going to say? Oh, you got to go take a test. You go apply here. You ask them, how do you become a wildland firefighter? They don't even know. They don't even know how to start. And then when you tell them they have to start by becoming a forestry tech, <laughs> you know, like, what? What are you talking about? You know? So so anyway, I, I hope that answered some of it, but sorry for my, my rambling there. No, that's I was just setting you up and, and I appreciate the, the context because it's it's all important and relevant when thinking about the, the end user of those two hundred teams yes. that you're that are in your challenge. Like they need to really dive in and remember that's who they're serving, that's who they're working towards. And um, I think oftentimes we maybe fall in love with the solution without really realizing the the human element and the true problem of what you just mentioned. And un- unfortunately, the whole mental health and, and just the, the wear and tear on your body, on your relationships. I mean, just that, that thought of you're, you're gone for six months or you're gone for three months or whatever. It's like, what? how do you have a relationship? You know, how, what if, what if you have kids? I mean, what, if, you know, what, what's that other job you're doing for six months? I mean, it's, it's not comp- totally cut and dry. So I, I, I have a lot of respect and admiration and empathy for, for those individuals that do that because it's, it takes a lot of courage and, and grit. And I mean, it's one of those things I, it's a, a different conversation, but I was, um, was with a bunch of uh, water utility operators um, the other week. And that's another profession that is often overlooked and underappreciated where, you know, I'm sitting right next to my sink right now. I could turn it on we don't really think about how incredible that is, but the, just again, water operators, I mean, they are also heroes in our community that sometimes are overlooked a little bit and similar to wildland firefighters. I mean, it's, it's a hidden profession, like you'd mentioned, but I think maybe kind of transition into how it's maybe become a little less hidden, especially this summer. I mean, I'd love to hear, it seems like every year in the past couple of years, wildfire has become, and you have this word behind you, a bit more destructive each year and maybe even just just in 2023 i'd love to hear your kind of thoughts on i, I don't want to call it the industry but the, your thoughts on the, the state of wildfires right now i mean we i've been in the midwest all summer and we had multiple days this summer from with the canadian wildfire smoke and you saw those photos from new york and obviously different parts of the west coast in colorado and in california had various wildfires this year i don't know if they're as destructive as they were in previous years of course, the Maui wildfire situation, but, you know, from a, a J perspective of a, a state of wildfires right now, like where are we and, and what's keeping you up at night? And, and maybe what, what also gives you hope um, with the kind of the current state of, of all things, uh, destructive wildfires right now. Yeah. I, you know, real quick, I'll go back and say, all you structure guys, don't try to come beat me up. I respect you guys and I love you too. You're on the ground with us fighting. I'm not trying to discredit the structure world. So forgive me if that came off that way, but you know I do have a passion for this wildland fire uh, fighter as I am one. So I'm just trying to bring to light our challenges and not discredit theirs because it is a collaborative effort. And I think one last thing on that is that most folks need to realize that when you see a fire team come in, uh, you know, incident management team and hotshot crews and jumpers or whoever engine crews, you got to realize that they're probably from somewhere else. 
And most people don't realize that, you know, 90% of those resources, if you will, are from another state, in some cases, another country like Australia or Canada. And that also speaks to some of the good things and bad things. Where else in the world would you bring a collaboration like that together in an instant, in an instant? Nowhere, right? How beautiful is that, man? I mean, that is just beautiful. I could be working alongside a New Zealand firefighter and then the next day be working alongside somebody from Mississippi, you know? So it's it's kind of cool in that, that context. Destructive fire. It's funny you mentioned that too, because uh, I was just on a drift boat trip up in Wyoming this weekend with a good buddy of mine who's a fire manager. And we went into, uh, you know, we had a good three, four hour drive to get to the river. And we went into this whole conversation on, is it more destructive? Are these fires worse? Are they not worse? Well, I would tell you that one issue right now that we all know is true in making the problem even harder is the WUI, the wildland urban interface. And I'm not just talking about residential growth. I'm talking about commercial growth into the WUI. I'm talking about infrastructure growth into the WUI. And that WUI, again, is that that sort of that used to be a pretty defined line of trees versus development. Unfortunately, like you said, in Maui, here in Boulder a couple of years ago, what you start to see is now it's all one right? These environments are all one. There's homes and businesses and playgrounds and pine trees and flammable grasses and hazmat. And all these things now create our wild and fire environment. You know, sure, there's still the single tree lightning strikes out there, you know, the remote fires that the jumpers jump. But honestly, the destructive fires are these ones that are starting in areas where there is no room for for error. There's no room to let it grow and do good things on the ground. Lives are threatened immediately. Property is and and trees are, you know, biodiversity is threatened immediately in these fire scenarios. You know, I could argue with anybody all day, what's the cause? Well, you know, I will say right now, our interface with the outdoor environment, that wooey interface is part of the the headache. And it's not going to change. I'm not saying it should or shouldn't. I'm just saying it's not going to change, right? We as humans are not going to stop developing our, you know, building our houses at the top of a, a ridge because we can see the, you know, the skyline or the mountains. We're going to still do that. And then we're going to expect the firefighters to come in and save our homes. So in a sense, we are creating our own destructive fire environment with this, this built up wooey, if you will. Now, Climate change. You know, again, you could argue all day long, is climate change real? Is it not real? Here's the deal. And, and I appreciate my good friend Justin saying this the other day is whether you agree with climate change or not, what you have to agree with is there's a cycle, right? And we are in a drying cycle right now. We are in drought, whether that's caused by, you know, the emissions from my car or cows farting in the field. I don't know. But I will say that we are in a drying cycle. And when we go into a drying cycle, then fires do increase. They spread faster. They are more destructive. They have more available fuels. And then lastly, I'll say that, you know, a lot of times you'll hear this smoky bear, bear thing, right? Where smoky was the worst thing that ever happened. Da, da, da. Smoky was the best thing that ever happened. You know, the message that smoky gives to the young, sort of the young community is awesome. Be safe with fire. You know, put your campfire out. Those are good messages. There's nothing wrong with that, right? What happened, though, is that we as fire agencies, especially land management fire agencies, took that a little extreme, you know, and started started addressing every fire like it was a wooey fire or a destructive fire. And we were unable to let these natural good fires burn and do some good work. So now, as you know, and some of the audience knows, we've created an environment between the wooey and now our failure to allow Mother Nature to do her thing, a destructive fire environment that's going to take decades to fix, right? There's no amount of prescribed fire we could put on the ground right now that's going to fix this. There's no amount of mitigation around homes that's going to fix this, right? There's just, you could talk to me all day about, oh, we're going to cut trees around the homes. Do you know that almost every mitigation is designed with in a static fire environment, meaning 20 foot tree spacing, low limbing, great, but put a 60 mile an hour wind on it. <laughs> you know, like, like we need to change our thinking and start adapting our treatments, our prescribed fire, our suppression, and especially our introduction of technology to address this different fire environment. 
not worry about the cause of so, that so much. That's somebody, That's other people's problems. As fire managers, we have to look at what we have in front of us and what it's going to look like in 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And I'm not saying technology is the solution to that, but come on, you know, technology is growing exponentially. Why wouldn't we adopt it to solve some of these problems? When you were speaking about, again, the Wuyi challenge, but also just whether it's the prevention conversation, whether it's adopting autonomous drones or satellite imagery, it's, it's, there's no silver bullet. It's a combination of a, of a hundred little things that need to be done to, from where we're at now and where we need to go. And kind of given the history of XPRIZE and catalyzing these major technological advancements through these competitions, where do you see this XPRIZE wildfire legacy in the next decade, 20, 30 years, and, and sort of what's your what's your vision for this challenge that you're that you're deeply involved with? Uh, it sounds corny, but you just gave me chills, man, because the reason I joined XPRIZE in this competition in particular is because I felt at the end of my career very frustrated. You know, I, I watched VLATs, very large air tankers, drop thousands of gallons of retardant on subdivisions and, you know, trees and helicopters at $10,000 an hour flying in the air. And we still couldn't catch the fire. You know, it's, it's something I say, here's a question to ask your, your audience is, would we send a thousand firefighters, first responders, let's just say first responders, firefighters, police, everybody, and hold hands on the beach in Florida when the hurricane's coming. Would we do that? That's ridiculous. So why does the community expect the wildland firefighter to go out and hold hands around a a major disaster, you know, a destructive 100,000, 300,000 acre wildfire? It's, you just can't, it's a natural disaster at that point. And so to your question, I would hope in 30 years, we have given the, the XPRIZE competition has given fire managers and the community that we serve the tools to make better decisions about fire, where the resources to, should go and when they should go. And better yet, maybe those fires could burn and do some good things on the landscape. Maybe the money is used for prescribed fire and mitigation and preparedness instead of millions and now billions of dollars for for suppression efforts that have pretty much little result on destructive fire, large fire. So I hope we can open that door of decision making, you know, the whole, you know, triangle of decision making and time, you know, and, and my idea with XPRIZE is let's make that a, a big triangle, right? Let's open that up to 90 degrees, if you will, where you know, all of a sudden, these fire managers, the community, they have a lot of time to make decisions about evacuations, about suppression, about letting it burn. We don't have time right now. There's no time for us right now. And I hope in the end, the X Prize again creates time. And that is invaluable for the fire manager. Jay, well said. You're making me want to just like go go on a run and like run through a brick wall right now. Um, and and I, I appreciate your kind of, yeah, just commitment and passion towards wanting to, to make a difference here. And, you know, I maybe should have brought this up earlier in the conversation, but I was, of course, doing a little research on you. And I saw one thing that really caught my attention. You, you brought up the focus on the wildland firefighter, but also was the, the focus on wanting to help first responders facing PTSD and I myself, my brain's kind of split between water and fire. I love all things spending time on the water. I do a lot of do watershed improvement projects and focus on biodiversity and all that stuff at XPRIZE interests me. But I saw some of the work you've done with Warriors on the River and just kind of, you know, again, while the XPRIZE and all the, the is looking at this tech and solving it, but back to the human element, just on kind of one final note, because I couldn't um, not ask you this, but tell me a little bit about kind of what the outdoors means to you and how you are kind of you've used the outdoors as a, you know, this kind of um, haven, this palace, this, this beautiful entity that we can all enjoy and experience. And I think that, that to me, that's why I do what I do. I want to keep doing what I, whatever possible to preserve the lakes and, and the rivers and the outdoors that I love to, for future generations and help others. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about your experience with kind of with the warriors on the river, as well as kind of what the, what the kind of functioning healthy outdoors really means to you. 
Yeah, thank you for that. The opportunity, you know, I was raised old school in fire, you know, shut up and dig push-ups if you you stepped out of line, you know, and I'm okay with that. You know, I, I grew up like that in the fire world. It's definitely a different, uh, much more respectful environment today. And so I think that helps a lot is, you know, there's a lot more inclusion, a lot more recognizing sexual harassment in the workplace and discrimination. I think we've done a better job of minimizing that now in the wild wildfire space. And I think that's that's helping the mental health issues of firefighters. I also think that, you know, with again, with some of the legislation and, and some of the other things that some of the states and the federal government are trying to do, that's going to help. But the reality is, is that, like we mentioned, you know, the suicide rates, the alcohol rates, the divorce rates, the depression rates of the wildland firefighter are skyrocketing. And I suffered, you know, it took me probably 10 years to say that to you on, on air here. You know, I would never have admitted that ever, ever. Right. You know, because we are just strong and we do our job. But the reality is, is that I suffered really bad and I almost lost my wife. I almost lost my life. And I needed to find something that, that could help me other than drugs and alcohol. Right. And depression. And for me, it was the river. And um, I became passionate about fly fishing. I been, became passionate about standing in nature, listening to nature. As you said, you know, being part of nature, it helped cleanse my soul. It helped remind me of who I was and why I was doing what I was doing, meaning fighting wildland fire. And then I thought others might enjoy it. So I founded, uh, along with my good friend, Justin Weitzel, we founded, and my wife and his wife, we founded the the nonprofit Warriors on the River. And and there we encourage first responders, nurses, doctors, psychologists, wildland firefighters, structure firefighters, police officers. Like you said, there's this natural resource element, you know, watershed workers, utility workers it expands so big you know utility workers what do you mean well those guys are on the front lines of wildland firefighting too man let me tell you they're the first ones in right repairing your phone and, and power line you know before we even let firefighters in sometimes we're letting those guys in and gals so the reality is is that each one of those first responders and i i open that up to to whoever serves the public need something. And for me, and it sounds like for you and hopefully some of your readers, it's mother nature in the outdoors. And that's one beautiful thing about XPRIZE is it does, um, it does focus on so many good humanitarian and environmental causes that it connects you with those important things. Yeah, well said, Jay. And, and one author that I think you would really like, if you haven't heard of him, his name is uh, Wallace J. Nichols, and he wrote the book called Blue Mind. And it's a whole study about why humans are happier, healthier, more productive when we're on, in, near, around water. And so for me, just that, that really changed my life and perspective in terms of doing everything possible to continue to protect and enhance our, our world's watersheds and wildland firefighters. And wildfires is this major intersection between my fire and water brain. So loved it, seeing you and, and hearing that and would love nothing more than to talk more about that at another time and to see how we could collaborate. But to kind of... Um, circle up here. I mean, we've covered so many things and I'm, I'm incredibly excited for the opportunity to continue to collaborate with you and to see you at the Technology Summit International, hosted by the IFC in early December. But what would you leave us with here today? If I could give you a, a chance for a, for a mic drop here or, or a, a challenge or a question or a thought or a quote, and it could be a couple things, you know, no rush here, but just kind of any sort of um, final thoughts that you could kind of drive home and, and leave us with here to kind of think about as we uh, close out here. Yeah, I have about a thousand running through my head, but, um, you know, I, I think focusing on the conversation, you know, technology in the history of wildfire, you know, like I said, you know, the smoke jumper program was established in 1930. Shortly thereafter, you know, in the forties and fifties, we began to use helicopters and even single engine air tankers. So you could see like, wow, this technology is spooling up. And then the 60s hit and, you know, we created the hotshot programs and obviously forest protection acts were starting and, and, you know, people were starting to recognize we need to protect the wildlands and the, the, the open spaces. And then about in the 70s, it, it all stopped as far as technology. And I'm not sure why, I'll be honest with you. You know, we could blame culture. We could blame whatever fire managers or firefighters being, you know, old grumpy guys and gals, but it's not true. The, the truth is, is that I think technology gave up on us because of the frustrations we talked about today. And I would encourage these solution finders, these these folks that 
are in their garage tinkering with electronics or drones or these these folks that have an idea, they just don't know how to build it. I would encourage them to get engaged with us at XPRIZE because what we're looking for is solutions to change the world. And that's exciting. It's something we all want to be part of. XPRIZE doesn't have a political agenda. We don't have a social agenda other than to do good things. We're a safe space for government, private sector to come to and work together. We've demonstrated that numerous times in the last 27, 29 years. And so I think it's important that everybody recognize that this is our global problem and we need to globally come together and solve it with some creative ideas. And I, again, I would leave the audience with, don't think your idea is stupid. Don't think that you can't contribute. Come join us. We'll find a place for you. We'll have you join a team. You could be a judge. You can help with testing. You could just be a supporter financially, whatever it is. But This is a global problem that requires a a global effort. And let's do it together. Let's make the change together. Jay, thanks for leading the charge and to the whole XPRIZE team. I just appreciate your uh, audacious, ambitious goals to leave a a positive dent in the world here. And so we can continue to um, enjoy it and live it happily and and live in harmony with Earth and live in harmony with each other. So, Jay, just want to thank you for everything and, and really appreciate your time and Look forward to staying in touch and and collaborating more in the future. Definitely. Registration closes October 31st for Track A, and you could go to XPRIZE backslash wildfire.org. Probably should ask that earlier in the podcast, but it's still (laughs) open. So we'll make sure to get this out. Thanks, Jay and the XPRIZE team, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks again. All right. Thank you, Kevin. See ya. Thank you so much for listening to the Smart Fire Finding Podcast today. If you enjoyed what you heard and got any value, please drop us a rating, leave us a comment, or reach out to us on social media. Have a great day, and together we can advance the future of smart firefighting.